We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the life everlasting. Amen. Those are wonderful reminders that these doctrines of the Trinity um, that we hold to is nothing new. It has united Christians throughout the ages since the Uh, since the time of Christ. What I want to do first in opening up the sermon is remind you of our overall flow of argumentation um, in the doctrine of the Trinity here. Here's our overall logical flow. God is one. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. These three are presented to us in Scripture as persons. Therefore, God is one God in three persons. Now, this is the bare bones, so to speak, of the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm not going to, for example, cover the relationship between the persons of the Trinity or the hypostatic union or the whole filioque controversy. What I hope to to impart to you at the end of this series is either a better understanding or maybe remind many of you of what we mean by true biblical monotheism. God is one God in three persons. These persons are not confounded with one another, and they do not divide the essence of that one God. Some time ago, and some of you will remember this, we had a man who left because he had discovered what he called true biblical monotheism. He denied the Trinity. And I remember what our pastor said at the time, um, just right off, right away, without missing a beat. He said, that's not biblical. God is not one-dimensionally one. There is a depth to his oneness that does no justice to his singular deity. He is one God in three persons, the persons neither confounding each other nor dividing the substance or essence of God. A few reminders from our previous sermon. Number one, remember that theology can be hard. We opened, that, we opened this series four weeks ago by examining briefly Proverbs 2, which shows us, one, that theology can be difficult to understand, Two, that understanding theology at some level is guaranteed to God's people with the words in Proverbs 2.5. You will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. And here's the source. For the Lord gives wisdom. And then three, that all such knowledge of theology is ultimately practical because it helps us to know what to do. Now, if theology in general can be hard, there are a few reasons why this is especially true in the matters of the doctrine of the Trinity. 
The first reason is that it is incomprehensible. This is more than just being comprehensible but very complicated. It doesn't matter how hard we try, we will not fully understand the doctrine of the Trinity. We have no frame of reference in our, un- in our reality for understanding precisely how God can be one and three and three and one. We are trying to describe the character of God. Think for a moment about who the God of the Bible is. Do you think this should be an easy thing to study God's character? We are to, trying to describe something that is completely independent of our reality, independent of our world, our universe, independent of everything we know. Everything we know constitutes a framework. There's a framework of words, ideas, intelligence, there's time, space, there's matter, there's everything else in our experience as living beings in the universe, and none of those things are adequate tools to fully describe the character of God. Because of this, we have to use words that are abstract. We use words like substance, like subsistence, and essence. Moreover, because of the ancient nature of the Trinitarian controversies, the language used to describe these doctrines today is often based in foreign words from ancient dead languages that sound strange to our ears today. So don't be put off by the fact that this is that this can be a hard thing to understand. I'll just remind you at this point again that God is incomprehensible with the words of Job 11:7 through 9. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven, what can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? If God is incomprehensible in general, he is certainly incomprehensible in his essence. And that's what we're trying to study in the doctrine of the Trinity. But remember, brethren, this is the God who has loved us from everlasting. We ought to want to know more about him. Consider the words of Jesus in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. All of this led to a couple of exhortations. Because God has seen fit to reveal and then preserve these truths for the benefit of his church today, they are truths worthy to be studied and truths that will prove beneficial to our souls. In light of the difficulties around studying the doctrine of the Trinity, we must avoid a couple of things. We must avoid a lazy, anti-intellectual spirit. What an arrogant thing it is to say to God, you know that thing you put in the Bible? It's too hard. It's superfluous anyway. It's extra. We don't need to know it, and it's only damaging to my spiritual experience as a Christian. I'm not going to study it. What arrogance. On the other hand, we must avoid a cold hyper-intellectualism which seeks to leverage the inherent complexities of this doctrine to stroke our own egos. Who goes to the ocean or to a glorious mountainscape and says, no big deal?
there's a I, I forgot I had this note in here actually and you'll have a couple of similar illustrations I guess um, there's a place on Mount St. Helens when you're walking down to um, a snow park called the Marble Mountain Snow Park right before you get all the way down to the snow park the trail goes off to the left it's a little side trail and there's a really huge flat area and it's got one of these um, buildings that the U.S. Geological Survey put there and it measures the earthquakes and stuff on Mount St. Helens so they can monitor it for eruption um, but the way this area is cleared out it's a huge area and there's an enormous rock wall right there, like nothing in your way, it's not far off, it's right there, and you stand there and you look at this thing and you feel small. That's kind of how it is with the doctrine of the Trinity. How can you go to it and say, no big deal, we should be in awe of this doctrine. We should look at it and say, behold the greatness of our God. He is beyond our ability to comprehend. So let's also avoid the arrogance of thinking that we can study the character of God as if we're scientists and he is a specimen to put under our microscope. He is God Almighty. If you go to the edge of your understanding and the limits of what Scripture explains and cannot comprehend the greatness of God's incomprehensible nature, but you're preoccupied with your own ego then you miss the point. So let us neither be lazy, anti-intellectuals, nor arrogant, hyper-intellectuals. Now this morning we turn to a very serious matter. All of it is a serious matter, but this one is quite serious. And let me explain. We're talking this morning, in both services actually, about God the Son. Now, there are doctrinal truths that we may disagree on as brothers and sisters in Christ. <clears throat> For example, even, even among Reformed Baptists, we may draw the line in different places when it comes to our implementation of the regulative principle of worship. If you don't agree with me, just go visit some other Reformed Baptist churches. There's differences there. We also might disagree on the application of our Christian liberty in our lives. Though these differences will persist in the sinful world, many of them are not so bad as to condemn, to put us out of the kingdom of light. I've even joked with Presbyterian brothers and sisters about how one day we'll have conversations in heaven and look back at how foolish the doctrine of paedo-baptism was. We'll finally be united in heaven as Baptists. But in matters of the deity and person of Christ, Christians cannot disagree. This is because there are no Christians who deny Christ. By definition, all who do are outside the fold. Hear the testimony of Scripture. John 14, 6, the words of Christ, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 8, 24, after telling the Jews that he is the light of the world, Jesus says to them, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Acts 4, 11 and 12, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. <clears throat> 
excuse me, I've got a frog in my throat this morning. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And First Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. When we invoke the name of Jesus Christ as the object of our faith, it is not as if the sound of the name has any power to save. It is the person behind that name in whom we must believe. The person behind that name is the one revealed in the scriptures as very God of very God, yet truly man. He is one person with two natures. He created and sustains all things, and all things were made through him and for him. I'm quoting scripture right there. To reject those truths about the Jesus of the Bible is to reject the Jesus of the Bible and so be without hope in this world, doomed to suffer in hell for eternity. When we get to heaven, there will be no conversations among two of God's people that go like this. Do you remember how I held to Pato baptism and you held to Credo baptism? Do you remember also how I used to deny that Christ was divine, but you didn't? That is never going to happen in heaven. Because no one will get there while denying Christ. You cannot deny the Christ of the Bible and still be saved. No one gets to the Father except through Christ. And so the matters that we speak of this morning are matters of life and death. Rejecting these truths is to be lost in your sins. So much for our introduction. Now let's get into the text. If you don't know this, this is good to have in the back of your mind. If you ever find yourself Uh, with a Jehovah's Witness at your doorstep, we're just needing to defend what we mean by the divinity of Christ. There are three critical passages that explicitly speak of the divinity of Christ. And they're kind of easy to remember because it's all chapter ones. John chapter one, Colossians chapter one, and Hebrews chapter one. If you're a Christian, you should be familiar with those three chapters in the Bible if you want to be able to defend the hope that is in you. I could have used any of those as a basis for this sermon, but I chose to use Colossians chapter 1 in verses 15 through 18, and really mainly verse 15. So what I'd like to do, if you can turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Sorry, I should have told you to turn there while I was talking, but please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, and I'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 23. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Excuse me. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, 
which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now the rest of the chapter here, at least the next few verses, are going to speak of some very lofty and glorious things about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. While I will speak to verses 15 through 20 in general, the main thrust of this morning's message is taken from verse 15. And I'll consider it under the following headings. Christ, the image of the invisible God. Christ, the firstborn of creation. And in the third place, I'll conclude with a summary. The Son is God, and the Son is a person. So first, before we get right into verse 15, let's consider the force of the whole passage. The force of the whole passage is soteriological. It's about salvation. Our text tells us two things about Christ. It says he is the image of the invisible God and that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, we're going to consider those things in turn, but let's not lose sight of the fact that this passage, which speaks of great truths about the supremacy of Christ, has a soteriological end, has a salvific end, if you will. Paul is giving us mystery in these words when he says, he, that is Christ, is the, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
but the whole passage has a practical end. Look at verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, that is God the Father. Do you care about those things in that verse? Do you care about being saved? Do you care about being presented holy and blameless before God the Father one day? That's the direction that the passage goes. It's not a polemic, you get it? Paul's not arguing that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And if you look throughout Scripture, that's always Maybe not always, but it's almost always how it's presented. It's just taken for granted that Jesus is God. And they just say it. But it all has in this passage this end, this soteriological end. There's a ring to it that we praise God for these truths, these mysterious truths of who Christ is being the very image of God. um, Because it leads to our reconciliation with the Father. There's not much that's more practical than that. Verses 15 and 16 speak to the supremacy of Christ in all creation as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one through whom and for whom all things were made. If we move on to verse 17, I should mention what I'm doing here is I'm just summarizing these verses quickly for us. In verse 17, Paul emphasizes that Christ is the sustainer of all things. He says, in him all things hold together. Then in verse 18, Christ is held up as the head of the church, the firstborn among the dead, speaking of his resurrection. In verses 19 and 20, we read of how the fullness of God was pleased to dwell on him, and because of that, Christ reconciles all things with the Father. And finally, and that's, this is the important part, we read that those who were once alienated from God in their sin, doing evil deeds, are now presented as holy and blameless and above reproach before God the Father. So Paul's not making an argument here. He's not reasoning with the Colossians. He's just telling them these things are true and they're blessed because they've made the gospel happen. He takes these truths for granted. He states them simply and he connects it to eternal life. Once somebody asked me, who doesn't attend here, uh, a friend of mine who's a Christian, asked me, how does your church stay relevant? It's always an interesting question, huh? I said, well, what's more relevant than eternal life? Paul explains glorious but mysterious truths about the nature of Christ and his relationship with creation. He says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God... Image is a visual representation of something. How can there be an image of something invisible? But he gives the Colossians these mysterious truths and he connects it in a chain of glorious truth to eternal life. He doesn't just go straight to eternal life, but connects these mysterious truths about Christ, which we cannot fully understand, to that wonderful, great, glorious, practical end 
of eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. These things matter. They are practical. Do not tell me that theology is not practical. Paul is not here engaging in intellectual abstraction. He's stating these Christological truths in praise to God. He's praising God for who he is and what he has done for us in Christ to reconcile his people to himself by the blood of the Lamb. These are mysterious and glorious truths. And they're meant to encourage us in our faith. They are practical. I touched on this already a little bit, but consider, moving on to our verse at hand, how the very words themselves defy understanding. The plain meaning of the words, he is the image of the invisible God. The word image means a physical likeness of, or representation of something. It's an optical counterpart or appearance of something. We can dismiss the definition of image with a mental representation of something because Christ was obviously not just a mental representation. He was an actual human man. And besides, the Greek word behind that is inconsistent with the idea that by image it meant some kind of idea. And then we have this word invisible. That means not visible. Nothing complicated there. Out of sight, not perceptible by the eye, that which cannot be seen. It's the same word used in 1 Timothy 1.17 to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. So the very words themselves, if you think about their bare definitions, there's mystery in them. Christ is the image, the visible representation of that which is invisible. Now, when we say Christ is the image of God, the image of the invisible God, it is not the same as man being made in the image of God. So I want to first say say that while this is the same word used to describe the truth that man is created in the image of God, it's not the same. This is not saying that Christ is the image of God in the same way that mere man is the image of God. In 1 Corinthians 11.7, Paul tells the Corinthian church, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. That's the same word there. In June of... 2021, I preached a sermon titled, What is Man? And in that sermon, I discussed the senses in which men and women are image bearers of God. In that sermon, I discussed how man is God's image as part of his identity. That is, it's a metaphysical reality. It's not something super added to our being. We are image bearers of God. I also discussed how man images God in ruling over creation and also relationally in biblical gender roles. We get these truths from passages such as this. Genesis 1.27 So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 5.1 
When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And by the way, we use that verse to show that men and women are image bearers of God because um, the fact that people are made in the image of God is the reason why murder is not okay. And certainly none of us would agree that it's okay to murder a woman and not a man. James 3, 8 through 9, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So there are several passages that talk about man being made in the image of God. Now let's compare it with the passages that speak of Christ being the image of God. And let's just see if there's a difference. Hebrews 1.3 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Philippians 2, 5 and 6. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. John fourteen nine. This is Jesus speaking. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 10.30, again Jesus speaking, I and the Father are one. When you read the two sets of verses together, the argument's kind of done. They're not the same thing. You guys know that old song, Sesame Street? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Which one of these things is not like the other? And however it goes, I don't remember. You look at these two things together, and it's like a kindergartner could look at one and say, well, they're different. Man's not made in the image of God in the same way that Christ is the image of God. It's obvious. But we can get specific. Nowhere does the Bible say that man is the image of the invisible God, that he is of the form of God. Nowhere does it say that man in general is the exact imprint of his nature. Some of the passages which speak of Christ being the image of God, including our passage this morning, connect this with his preeminence in creation and responsibility for creating all things. As we image God, as men and women, we point to God. We reflect his glory in how we relate to one another and assign gender roles and in our roles in society in how we exercise dominion over creation and in our very identity. But when the Bible speaks of Christ being the image of God, it points to Christ. He points to himself. And this is because he is God. It is obvious that Christ is not the image of God in the same way that man is the image of God. This is one of those things where you could probably prove it by getting into the exegetical weeds and picking apart the meanings of words, but it's one of those things. Just take a step back, and let's look at what the Scripture says. Arguments done. Scripture speaks for itself sometimes. Uh, 
Um, moving on to the next point here, I want to talk about how God is revealed in Christ alone. We are under the. My my heading is a little. My headings are kind of complicated. I've never had six levels of headings, and for some reason, I I do. And and so I'm going to try to help you along in keeping track of where we are. I'm still talking about. Um, One second here. Christ, the image of the invisible God, okay? I just spoke about how he how this does not mean that he images God in the same way that men and women image God. Now I'm going to talk about how part of what this means is that God is revealed in Christ alone. Christ being the image of God in part means that God is revealed in Christ alone. So having just discussed of what Christ being the image of God doesn't mean, we've got to start getting into what it does mean. And so I'm going to focus on two things that Christ being the image of God means. Number one is where we are. It means that God is revealed in Christ alone. And number two, it means that Christ is of the same essence as the Father. So in the first place, it means that God is revealed in Christ alone. John Calvin comments on our passage that God, in his naked majesty, is invisible to us. This is the testimony of scripture. When Moses desired to see God, he was told, you cannot see my face. You remember that from Exodus um, 33, where Moses asked God, show me your glory. And God said to him this, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. Jesus said in John 5, 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And the Apostle John tells us plainly in 1 John 4.12, No one has ever seen God. As one commentator has said of this passage, the essence of God is to our eyes invisible, to our minds incomprehensible. But then our passage, and others that I've read similar to to it, tell us that Christ is the image of that that which is invisible. This means, in part, that Christ makes God known to us. He is God's word become flesh, as it says in John, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He has become flesh, so has made that which is physically invisible, visible to our eyes, although now we behold him with the eye of faith. But as the word of God, he reveals to us God's righteousness, goodness, mercy, and truth. God in himself is unknowable. He is far, far above us. He is only known if he makes himself known. He must stoop down, so to speak, to reveal himself to his creatures. And this means, rather, the means by which he has done this is in Christ, in Christ alone. <clears throat> Isaiah, 54, um, Isaiah 55, verse 4, in speaking of the Messiah to come, says this, Behold, I made him a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the peoples. 
John 3, 31 through 33 reads as follows. He who comes from above is above all. He who who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthy, earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. And it's speaking of Christ here. It says this, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. When Jesus was speaking with Pilate before his crucifixion, he says in John 18, 37, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, as we read in Revelation 1. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Considering these things, John 17, uh, excuse me, John 1, 17 and 18 become more clear, I believe. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Just as there is no other name by which we must be saved but that of Jesus Christ, so there is no other name by which we may know God but that of Jesus Christ. John Calvin sums it up well in his commentary on this passage. I already quoted part of it earlier. I'm going to quote the whole thing now. The sum is that God in himself, that is, in his naked majesty, is invisible, and that not only to the physical eye, but also to human understanding and that he is revealed to us in Christ alone, where we may behold him as in a mirror. For in Christ he shows us his righteousness, goodness, wisdom, power, in short, his entire self. We must therefore take care not to seek him elsewhere, for outside Christ everything that claims to represent God is an idol. Now, regarding that last bit, maybe he would have said more if he was alive today. I would add a little bit to that. I would add that this includes anything under the name of Christ that does not conform to a biblical Christology. The Christ of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the name of which is a misnomer itself, says that Christ is nothing more than a spirit creature, created before all things, but still created. That Christ is an idol, I don't care what they call him. This also includes the Christ of Mormonism. Listen to what one Mormon author says of Jesus Christ. So who is Jesus Christ? We believe he is our savior. He suffered and died in payment for our sins. He was born to Mary in Bethlehem and died on the cross at Calvary. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He taught the people through parables. He cleansed the temple at Jerusalem, was baptized in the river Jordan, healed the sick, ate with sinners, performed miracles. 
he execute he was executed on the cross but after three days he took his life back and was resurrected together with god the father and the holy ghost jesus christ is god well that sounds pretty good huh it says right at the end jesus christ is god but brethren whatever the author means by this it's something different than what the bible means as we'll see more in the next subheading when I speak of Christ being the same essence as the Father. And the reason is this. Later in the same article, the author asserts this. We believe that Jesus Christ is a separate being from the Father. That statement is a big deal. I am not splitting hairs and insisting that we be unrelentingly specific and biblical when we speak of the nature of Christ. You can see in the light of this double speak like this, why the ancient creeds that fleshed out the Trinity had to be so redundant and specific at times, especially the Athanasian Creed. This author may not have a problem saying that he worships one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. But when you make him commit to the statement that the three persons of the Trinity do not divide the essence of God, if he's honest, he'll have a problem with that. Why is this no small thing? Why is this not splitting hairs? Because it's the very essence of God that we're speaking of, the divinity of Christ. And in those ideas rest eternal life and eternal damnation. To say that Christ is God, and then to say he's a separate being from God, is no different than Aaron making a golden calf and then telling the Israelite people, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It is idolatry. The sound of the name doesn't matter. In such a so-called Christ, you will find no hope and no salvation, but only death. As I said, both sermons, if you look at the, the handout today, the next service was supposed to be on the Holy Spirit. I sent our pastor a text last night and said, I, I should have known that I couldn't cover Colossians 1 in, in one sermon. I should have thought of that. There's a lot here, even in just this one verse. And so both sermons are on um, God the Son. And so we'll have to end at kind of a weird place. Uh, I don't want to end yet because I'm afraid I won't get through it in the next hour. So I'm going to end moving on to, uh, to a next little subheading here that speaks of Christ being the same essence as the Father. But I want to talk about, and this is a long illustration. I took pains because I want people to understand what do we mean by essence? Why is that such a big deal? That's one of those words that's kind of abstract, and it's thrown around a lot in the literature. If you want to read about the Trinity, we have 2,000 years of church history where people have wrote Trinitarian truths, and we can go and read it. But this language is in it, and if you don't get it, it's going to prevent you from understanding greater things about these Trinitarian truths. So in this second place, Christ is 
uh, Christ being the image of God means that he is of the same essence. But let's take a pause and consider what we're saying. Christ is the same essence as the Father. One could also say that Christ is the same substance as the Father. Now, the English word essence means that which constitutes the particular nature of a being or substance, that which makes anything to be what it is. It is the intrinsic, fundamental nature of a thing. I'm going to illustrate this, okay? So just bear with me. The word substance is similar. This word means essential, main, or material part of something, or simply being, that which exists by itself or as, constitute, or as a constituted unit. It is the actual matter of a thing. Now, if you've read any John Locke, the 17th century English philosopher, some of what I say here about essence maybe will be reminiscent of his ideas. It doesn't matter, but he talks about this thing called nominal versus real essence, I stayed away from all that stuff on purpose because I don't need it. Um, I don't need a philosophical explanation here. I don't think it's necessary. Um, so if, if you are aware of that stuff, any similarities are incidental here, okay? I'm not trying to approach this from a philosophical point of view. So with that said, maybe an illustration will help us here understand what we mean by essence. What is it that makes a forest a forest? Is it the dirt? Is it the animals? Is it the amount of rain or wind? Is it the flatness or hilliness of it? A forest, according to the definition, is a large tract of land covered with trees and underbrush. If you drive to Eight Canyon Trailhead on Mount St. Helens, this is where I double-dipped on some illustrations here, so I apologize for that, but if you drive to Eight Canyon, trailhead on Mount St. Helens, there is a five-mile trail that leads to a beautiful butte called Pumice Butte. For most of the trail, you find yourself under a canopy of large evergreen trees, mostly dug fir trees. There's probably other ones, but I don't know how to recognize trees. Near the bottom, the trail gets near the edge of what anybody there would say, I'm at the edge of this forest. And it's obvious because to the left, as you're walking up, there's a large drainage area. You know, and early in the spring, it's just roaring with water, probably from all the melting snow. But later in the summer, it's just dry rock. For, and it's really, really wide. It's obvious that this is not the forest. There's no trees. At the top of the trail, the trees become sparse, and they give way to rock. And then when you reach the top of Pumice Butte, and look to the north, it's a beautiful area. If you haven't been there, you look to the north, you can see the entire west flank of the mountain and would probably be able to see all the way to Johnston Ridge Observatory at the north end of the mountain if it weren't for a large ridge that's in the way. It's beautiful there. You look down a 2,500-foot canyon at the Smith Creek drainage. You look north on a clear day and you can see Mount Rainier. A little bit to the right, you can see Mount Adams. You look south, you can see Mount Hood from certain spots, and it, it's really clear you can see sisters. Way down in central Oregon. As you look north along the west flank of the mountain, this area is called the Plains of Abraham. It's not called the Forest of Abraham. As you look behind you from where you just came, you can see the forest. 
the thing that distinguishes these two things is not the one is not that one is colder or hotter than the other it's not that one area has no squirrels or something like that nor is it because the plains are more windy it's the trees you're out of the forest because there's no trees if essence is that which makes a thing what it is you might say that the essence of a forest is trees now we could split hairs here because we probably wouldn't call a christmas tree farm a forest though it could be a large tract of land covered with trees we also probably wouldn't call a tree farm with large trees on it you know planted in a perfect row just being grown to harvest the wood we probably wouldn't call that a forest so maybe there's some element of wildness that needs to be there for us to call it a forest but bear with me here let's keep it simple the essence of a forest is that it has trees if there are no trees it's not a forest let me ask you this why is that easy to say rather why is that easy to understand when i say the essence of the trees is a forest the essence of a forest is the trees is anybody confused everybody gets that right why why is that easy to understand i assume everybody here is not struggling with what i'm saying and maybe even wondering why are you rambling about such simple stupid things will you get to the point it's easy to speak of a forest in abstraction when i say the essence of a forest because i can attach that abstract idea with something you know you know what a tree is you can touch it you can smell them they can be cut up they can be made into beautiful things you they will burn if lightning strikes them when the wind blows through a pine tree it picks up its scent in the forest especially on a hot day and you can smell the pine in the wind there are certain trees on the mountains here i don't know what they're called but when the wind blows through the leaves it sounds like water and it's a really cruel trick when you're on a long hike and you're out of water you think you hear water the point is you know what a tree is therefore when i talk about a forest in abstraction it's easy because you attach it to something you know when i talk about the essence of god i can't attach it to anything you know i can't attach it to something that's concrete now i may be able to leverage concrete things to illustrate what i mean even as i'm doing now but i cannot attach the essence of god to anything that all of you know because he is completely other he is other and foreign to everything that you know in this universe he exists independently and outside of everything that we know indeed he exists outside of everything we don't know that's in this universe and so i can't say you guys the essence of god is fill in the blank i can't say that if i do it's going to lead to idolatry that's why it's hard i can't attach an abstract idea to something concrete and that's how we learn if you read any books about how the human mind learns things and understands things that's how we learn we connect things with things that we already know anything new we're learning we connect it with old things that we already know um richard barcelos talks about that in the seminary he says all we're doing here really in seminary is giving you knowledge hooks we're giving you hooks to put things that you know on you're going to learn those things later but we're just giving you a way to organize everything 
That's how we learn things. And when we talk about the essence of God, the character of God, as opposed to how God's works manifest his greatness or how he relates to his people in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is necessarily abstract if we want to be specific. And because it's abstract, it's harder to understand. Moreover, the more precise we try to be in understanding the character of God, the harder it will be to understand. We start adding details to it, and it gets more difficult for us to understand. Yes, it is true that at times men can complicate theology because of their own egos. But it's also true that the real character of God is hard to understand. And that's why. So as the essence of a forest is its trees, the essence of God is... I can't fill in the blank. Brethren, that's the edge of the abyss. I can't walk into it, because to go further is to go beyond Scripture and into speculation. But we can hold, but we can behold how great God is. We can understand that he is beyond our comprehension. And in light of our experience, our real concrete experience with the Lord in redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ, we can we look at the greatness of God and we say, that's the God who loves me from everlasting. That's the God who sent his son to die for me. That's the God who has prepared a place in heaven for me. And then we can heartily and more fully say, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. Just one, one point of application here regarding that, and it'll be a nice, neat place to end. And I promise we'll get to the text in the next hour. In the first place, if we take this illustration just a little bit further, it's easy to see why being precise is not just important but necessary. So let's carry this a little further. You may be tired of hearing about forests, but I'm going to carry it one step further. Suppose that the true God who created all things and in whom, and in whom all, all things are sustained and for whom all things exist was a forest. Don't throw anything at me. He's not a forest, I get it. But bear with me here. Now, the essence of a forest is the trees in it. Now suppose that someone comes along and tells you that they worship the same God as you. But... They seem to worship a quite different God. And you get to talking with them and they describe the essence of their God as being wet, loud, and flowing quickly. After much discussion, you figure out that what they're actually describing is not a forest, it's a mountain creek. And so you argue with them that they worship a different God because what they describe is something quite different from what you worship. But they insist, no, it's a forest. And the differences that you object to are only appendages to the core doctrine that you that we both hold in common. Perhaps they even use much of the same words that you use in describing that forest to describe their creek. The problem is when you worship that creek and not the God of the Bible, 
you commit idolatry because the essence of the two things, what actually makes them what they are, is not the same thing. And this is exactly what some Trinitarian heresies do. And it is why we must be diligent in guarding the precise language which describes Orthodox Trinitarianism. Let me read to you again an excerpt from this Mormon author. He says this, The point is, Latter-day Saints believe that there was a real person named Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and suffered for your sins so that you might be cleansed of them and return to the presence of God. Only through Christ can we be saved from the consequences of sin and death. That's who Christ is to us. Literally, all the other things we believe, as Joseph Smith put it, are only appendages to these doctrines. You see, I, I, that's where I got the word appendages. That's why I used it. They even say that Jesus is eternal, but only in the same way that all of us are eternal with pre-existing souls of sorts from eternity, or what they call eternity past, which, by the way, is no new idea. Just go look at ancient Greek philosophy, and you can read the same ideas. Don't worry about the fact that Jesus is a separate being. That's just a small appendage. No, that's the whole point. The forest is not the stream, and the stream is not the forest. And when it comes to the things of God... It's more than just semantics. So we need to stand firm to true biblical monotheism. We are speaking of the essence of God. And to mess this up is to commit idolatry and to be without hope in this lost and dying world. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to know you. We love you. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. We are so blessed that we can sit here and breathe a sigh of relief knowing that even now we have peace with this God who we cannot comprehend. We have a yearning desire, Lord, to see more of your glory. And Lord, we acknowledge that that you are not something that we can put below our feet and study as if we're above you. We study you humbly. We study you with love, just wanting to see more of your glory. And so, Lord, as we continue in the next hour with this same topic, we ask you, Lord, to do just that. For these are things that we can't comprehend in our human nature. And these are things that we struggle to comprehend even as um, blood-bought saints where we struggle with our own sin and we grow tired of hearing of hard things and we can be lazy. Help us, Lord, to understand more of you. And may it lead to more holy living and may it lead to our ability to uh, encourage one another in the church and to be better husbands and fathers and children to our parents and workers at work and all of those things that are very, very practical, Lord. Help us to see these connections and behold your glory and so love you more and love the Lord Jesus Christ more. All that we can bring you more glory as we seek to serve you and live out holy lives in this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.